It's Journey into Marvel. Host Julian R. Munns. Hello, 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 and welcome to Journey into Marvel, uh, the place where we do close readings of everybody's favorite comics, or at least my favorite comics, which are the Marvel Earth 616 comics. Now, uh, for those of you who don't really even know what a close reading was, I was talking about this on, on Twitter uh, just recently, and we have, we've got a, a substantial amount of Twitter followers. Uh, I hope most of you are real people and not just bots. Uh, but a close reading comes from, um, uh, well, you know what? Before we talk about that, how about I just introduce myself, as I said. So it's uh, Julian R. Munns is my name, uh, and... This podcast lately has been uh, accompanied by a good friend of mine, and that would be uh, Mr. John Chu. Hey, John, say hello. Hello. All right. So this is John. This is the other guy that's on the podcast. Uh, I don't think any of you are following him on Twitter yet, uh, but by all means, do that. It's an actor surf. Now, John, have you ever heard the term close reading? I don't know that I have, not until you have used it uh, sort of in my hearing in terms of talking about this podcast before I actually came on it, and obviously just now. So please, Julian. Oh, okay. Uh, well, so uh, close reading is a, uh, a common uh, term that you'll hear, particularly when you're in a university. Usually uh, undergrounds will hear it. Uh, used by the professors constantly in English classes. Uh, what it is, is it's reading a story or a poem or something and then very um, meticulously going through it and examining how the author may create themes, uh, may use um, grammar, may use all sorts of different, like allegory and all that to bring out the story. Now, the root of it goes all the way back into ecumenical thinking. So we're talking about Christian reading usually and, and probably religious mm. reading before that, in which they would read maybe a chapter of the Bible uh, and examine verse by verse what that verse could be applied to themselves. But since, you know, I'm a pretty strict anti-theist and hardly religious uh, in any capacity, um, this is... For me, uh, entirely a secular endeavor, and we're treating the same sort of literate mind, uh, literate examination of our comic books here uh, that you might have done to the Bible if this was, say, 70 uh, AD or something like that. Uh, so, John. Julian. John. Uh, Julian. To uh, make uh, you uh, a little bit of a, a clearer character, if you will. Uh, what have you been reading lately? I have actually been reading uh, Roger Zelazny, uh, the Princes in, a in Amber series, which I had never read before. I don't know it. What's, uh, what's it about? Um, well, I got onto it because uh, Neil Gaiman has mentioned it uh, multiple times. Oh, uh, Neil. You're a big oh, fan. Not that You're... I am a big yeah. Gaiman fan. Uh, he's, uh, it's, it's, it's borderline obsession. Uh, he's <laughs> super cool. And I'm, I'm actually mainly killing time because... Uh, his book, uh, his retelling of Norse myth, which I believe is titled Norse Mythology, uh, is due to come out on Kindle on the 7th. Oh, um, wow. 
as a weird aside, I actually saw copies of the book sitting on the shelf in an Indigo, and I don't want to mention which Indigo because I don't want to get somebody in trouble. Um, but Indigo, for those who are unaware, is a bookseller uh, in Canada. Uh, essentially, it is Barnes and Noble for Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, there were there were copies of Norse mythology on the shelf. I want to say about a week and a half or two weeks ago. Uh, so I don't know if that there's was an accident. I, I assume it was shelved by mistake, unless it is one of those things where the hard copies are put out, and then there's a window where you can only get the hard copy, and then it goes on sale on Amazon. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty sure the release date I've seen him mention on his Twitter and or Instagram is like February 7th. Wow. So I was like, oh, I don't. Those were misshelved, put out by mistake. Huh. Uh, but because I had already pre-ordered it on Kindle, I didn't bother buying the physical copy. Yada yada yada. Huh. Uh, uh, yeah. So uh, the prince. Uh, the the Princes in Amber series by Roger Zelazny is uh, from the late 60s, 70s-ish. It is fantasy-ish, but it actually also has a lot of elements of uh, noir, uh, which is to say, so it starts out with a guy who wakes up in a hospital room and has no idea who he is and how he got there. And as he uncovers more and more about himself, he realizes that he is a sort of fantastical being. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, hilarity ensues. Hmm. Well, maybe maybe that's something I'll I'll look into myself. Yeah. Um, but uh, tell me, uh, since you're a Neil Gaiman fan, um, Neil's I was lo- I was in a, an Indigo for those of you, uh, an Indigo recently, uh, and I was looking at Neil's what is it quasi memoir or something mm-hmm. on the in the what's it on the pages or something like in the in the pages with Neil or something like that. So I guess you you don't know it. No, I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, oh, okay. The was a recent collection of his nonfiction writing that was released. But so I, what, I what was it called? Uh, the View, or perhaps A View from the Cheap Seats. Oh, that's what I was looking at, yeah. There you have it. Okay, so what was that like? Did you read that? I did. Uh, I enjoyed it. It is. Uh, it does spam pretty much his entire writing career. Uh, as far as nonfiction stuff. And so the nonfiction that he's written mainly consists of essays. Uh, there's a copy of the Make Great Art speech in there, I believe. Mm. Um, four words to books that he's written. Mm. There is one really interesting series. It's, it's two, so it's two articles, uh, one after the other, mm-hmm. one of which is a very early interview he did with Lou Reed when he was a, a music journalist. Mm. Uh, and then the second, or I forget which order they come in, um, the second is the article he wrote after Lou Reed died. Oh, cool. So to just juxtapose them and put them side by side, yeah, Lou Reed obviously being uh, a fairly large figure, both in his musical taste and in his personal style, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll pick that one up. I was looking for another book to buy when I'm in an Indigo. I've got some Indigo gift cards, so... Ooh. Yeah, and I don't normally go to Indigo because when I go in there, I feel like it's a corporate nightmare, uh, and oh, I is. can't find any damn books I'm looking for because it's not uh, scored or not scored or not organized, excuse me, uh, by, you know, like the Dewey Decimal System or or the right. library system. It's like organized yep. in this really strange way. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you constantly have people grabbing books and then just leaving them all over the place, so things are in all sorts of weird orders. Yeah, um, I only really go in there if I have like a couple of hours to kill, 
And I just feel like reading some random books, so I'll just grab a book and sit and read it. Oh, okay. Okay, I understand. I get I get what it's for then. Yeah. yeah. No, I'll just buy my books offline or go to an actual bookstore, one that actually is organized in a correct manner. Um, yes. So I can actually find the things that I'm looking for. Anyway, so um, today's, this is episode nine for those of you out there. Uh, and today we are talking about an absolutely iconic issue. Uh, this is probably the most iconic issue that we've encountered thus far, John. Uh, this is the first introduction of Dr. Doom, Dr. Victor Von Doom, who is, some people will claim, is the very first supervillain of Earth-616. I mean, we've had, uh, we've had Namor already, uh, but as I said, Namor, and I think you said too, would you agree that Namor's not really a supervillain? Uh, he's more of an anti-hero or something. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and certainly, you know, anybody from the modern era who is sort of aware of the character from Namor will know that, you know, he's had his own series for some time at various yes. times. And, and yeah, he is, he is. Yeah. And then, uh, well, we've had, we had Mole Men uh, in the original Fantastic Four issue number one. But Mole Man is very inconsequential as a supervillain. And then, other than that, we haven't really had any other supervillains. So this is uh, this is Doctor Doom's debut. Although I think it's pretty hard to call this as a Doctor Doom debut because he's very much a secondary character in this story. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's pretty weird. Uh, yeah. There's some weird, you know, laying the groundwork for the character, and then he just, like you said, just disappears and then pops back in and does evil villain maniacal things and then runs away because that's what villains do when they lose to the good guys. Yeah. Oh, man, spoiler alert. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, the story that we're uh, we are focusing on today is Prisoners of Doctor Doom, exclamation mark, which is featured in the Fantastic Four issue number five, July 1962, Although, uh, this probably came out, so it goes July, June. This came out in May 1962. So the, the title is uh, July uh, 1962. Now, like all the original issues uh, here, they are organized into a kind of chapter system. So we'll go through the chapters on this one. But, you know, when I was trying to think of a, a general statement to make about this issue... John, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that strikes me in this story is the concept of otherness, uh, usually otherness by the way you look, uh, because we get mm. two simultaneous stories, we get two threads that the main characters are both Thing, Ben Grimm, and yeah. Victor Von Doom, who are disfigured. Mm -hmm. And although we don't get too much into Dr. Doom's disfigurement on this uh, story. This is something that later comes on with uh, Dr. Doom. Uh, I, actually, I don't think it really gets heavily established how disfigured he is until Fantastic Four Annual number two. Uh, but this seems to be a common thread in that there is seems to be a similarity between Ben Grimm and Victor Von Doom in this story. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Yeah, I I very much agree with that. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's it's interesting to 
think about, I suppose, and then perhaps to, to keep that in mind as we move forward through the story and, and yeah, look at what yeah. the, what the two similarities are between the two of them. Now, mm-hmm. so Victor Von Doom, definitely uh, Doctor Doom. Uh, so I kind of, I will be using both terms throughout this issue. He's definitely one of the most iconic characters. He's had over probably getting close to well over a thousand appearances in uh, the Earth Six One Six, starting here in 1962 and going right on through. He focuses. He's very much the arch nemesis of the Fantastic Four. Although he becomes arch nemesis of many different characters and is now actually, do you know what he's doing now, John? Uh, I do not know what Doctor Doom is doing now. So now is he in charge of the uh, Department of of uh, you know housing and urban development in the United States. <laughs> uh, he no, is a doctor, Julian. It's so true. He's, well, he, he's a doctor. He's he's probably well. I mean, here's the thing. Okay, when, okay, let's talk about a little bit about Ben Carson for a moment, shall we? Uh, ben Carson. He's considered one of the best neurologists in the United States. Like he's famous for what was it, separating two twins, right? Uh, right, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. two Siamese twins. But Doctor Ben Carson doesn't strike me as a very smart individual. No, doesn't he believe that aliens might have helped construct the pyramids and sort of theories like that of mm-hmm. that ilk and. I thought you had to be smart to be a, the type of neurologist that he is. Well, I mean, smart, again, encompasses all kinds of things, right? It can be technical knowledge. It can be uh, the ability. I remember reading an article in an education journal, uh, and this was some years ago, actually. So I can only imagine that the debate has continued since then. Uh, and it was talking generally about the schooling system and what is taught in school and how it's actually, when you think about it, like fundamentally woefully out of date, right? Like schooling, as we growing up understood it, was about the learning of facts, right? Like uh, 1776 is the year of American independence and uh, things of that ilk, dates, Mm -hmm. numbers, ideas. Um, But the reality that we live in now is that you can look up all of this information in the snap of a finger, right? By tapping a couple things into Google. So really the skill that needs to be being taught in schools is how to discern between facts and and ideas which come from trusting, like trustable, that's not quite a... Are you saying that our schools should be teaching critical thought, John? That is exactly what they should be teaching, and perhaps that is a part of the reason why we find ourselves now in a situation where, quote-unquote, fake news, uh, people just take as gospel because, oh, it's on this random website, you know, so it must be trustworthy. But John, have have you considered that the education system as we know it is based off of mostly Christian or Judeo-Christian techniques of education and has been done for the last maybe thousand years in pedagogy and what is the main thing that a religious organization does not want to teach Uh, critical thought because it's uh, all about social control you got it so don't doesn't that mean that we have to throw out the entire uh way that we are currently doing education well yes that was precisely the thrust of of the article yeah what's the point of teaching theories like even stuff like the like the pythagorean theorem uh, i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly pythagorean uh, yeah you can look that up you yeah. don't need to have a squared equals b squared plus c squared memorized you can just look it up yeah you can. You need, which is turns out not really that often unless mm-hmm. you're an engineer 
<laughs> well, you know, Pythagoras, yeah, Pythagoras is, Pythagoras is certainly as a character, as a person, is far more important than we give him credit. Although he's interesting because he's pretty much embodies what's wrong with education. Pythagoras was a man who believed that knowledge was the realm of only a very particular few and in fact held the secret of the triangle uh, to only his Pythagorean group, kind of like like a cult. And they, they held it for years and years as this special piece of knowledge that only certain people could actually have. So in many ways, Pythagoras is the beginning of some of this strange pedagogical thought so mm. it's interesting that you went immediately to the pythagorean theorem with that which is the famous the famous beginning of knowledge for the few not for the many ah. yeah so uh yeah well that's that's interesting so yeah um i never thought about that with uh with, well i guess ben carson is the natural result i we're seeing a lot of that now now it's also that it's also interesting that we're having this conversation here, and it's because in this, and I think we can see this beginning here in Prisoners of Doctor Doom. But the main conflict that exists between Doctor Reed Richards here and Doctor Victor Von Doom is a difference between science and magic, or science and the supernatural. Notice, John, mm -hmm. in this story throughout here, um, Victor Von Doom specializes in black magic. Yes, although he doesn't really seem to use any. But not in mentioned. this story. Not in this story. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know uh, certainly there are very recent examples of Doom's mastery over magic, uh, something that Reed Richards is, finds much more difficult to grasp and to, to attain. Well, right. yeah, this is where you start to see, this is what's, this is when I'm most interested by Fantastic Four, generally when Doctor Doom is involved in the stories, because mm. you've got these great, you got this, you got, you got an actual real conflict happening between Reed Richards' more uh, logical science mm -hmm. and Victor Von Doom's more intuitive science, if you will. Like, hmm. and, and you, Victor Von Doom is more obsessed with parapsychology and, and those things, pseudoscience, things like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas Reed mm -hmm. Richards would think it's all bunk. So it's, it's, I think this is, this is why I think, uh, Reed Richards and, uh, and Dr. Doom are probably, probably, it's probably the best villain hero relationship. Anyway, so mm -hmm. we began on this uh, conversation by talking about what Doom is doing now in Earth-616. He's still very much around. He's actually now more of an anti-hero. As with all the favorite villains uh, in Marvel, uh, he, Loki as well, he uh, actually has his own title now. And it's called oh. the Infamous Iron Man. That's an interesting choice of title. That's because he is Iron Man. What? Yeah, it's uh, he's he's kind of like the anti-hero Iron Man at the moment. It's it's a really cool, really cool place. So why don't we go through? I don't. It's gonna be forever. But I don't. We may never even make it uh, to this. I would assume never. <laughs> <laughs> we may. We Not may. Unless... 
hey, yeah. hey, hey, it's it's all about we'd have to just we just have to up how many times we do issues, how many times well, we do episodes. I was also going to suggest that we could do the Futurama thing and be brains in jars. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about this. <laughs> we can talk about this for all eternity. And I sure. can't wait, John, in a thousand years when I'm a brain in a jar and you're a brain in the jar, and we are betting about uh, random Federation ships landing on our planet and betting quailu- uh, quatloods on things. <laughs> One thousand quatloods. That sounds. <laughs> that sounds. That sounds both horrifying and uh, extremely entertaining. Yeah, we should do that. We should do yeah, that. Totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> anyway, so uh, here what we do, this is the, the framework of the episode. We normally do a little bit of a, a nitty-gritty, so for those of you who haven't read the story, we will kind of go through it and talk about how the story develops and what happens in the story. Uh, and hopefully, I, I, I try and keep myself mostly focused on the story but just as you've noticed we're what uh probably 20 minutes into this and we haven't barely talked about marvel we talked about neil gaiman and we've talked about dr ben carson so this is kind of how it goes uh and then after that uh like to talk a little bit about trivia uh what the story says for the rest of earth 616 and then after that, we kind of go into a more freeform uh, conversation, which can last a while, but that's usually where John is most brilliant because John will come up with some crazy theory about something. And if you don't, uh, if you don't, if you don't believe me about John's ability to come up with some sort of mind-altering uh, theory about a story, take a look at episode uh, called Oppenheimer's Hulk, where we are talking about Hulk. And John, which I'm now calling John Chu's King Kong Theory. Just look it up. Go find Oppenheimer's Hulk. Anyway, so John, um, the story begins, and we are beginning on page one. The Fantastic Four in Prisoners of Doctor Doom. And the first panel we are greeted with Doctor Doom. (laughs) (laughs) Doctor Doom, his pet vulture, and... (laughs) Uh, kind of like chess pieces that are built in the shape of the Fantastic Four. Uh, <laughs> and I actually think they're just straight up dolls. To me, the image is exactly like the image of Dark Helmet in Spaceballs. Oh, playing yeah. With- <laughs> That's exactly what I envisioned that panel. I think it's... It's like with the Spaceballs toys, is- yeah. Yeah, uh, it's my favorite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except there's a checkerboard beneath them. Uh, yeah, but that's just, I don't know. Because. <laughs> Keeping the table, who knows? Anyway, so sure. the story today is written by Stan Lee, of course, and penciled by Jack Kirby. So this is the, the Lee Kirby. Um, this is the Lee Kirby team. So we are dealing with the originals here. Now, we first meet Victor. We first meet this green character that looks like. So he's wearing a, like a green cloak, and he looks. Kind of like he's wearing a suit of armor, because he's got this this armor plated mm-hmm. um, mask, and yes. also these this kind of like metal uh, these metal gloves. It looks mm-hmm. like now, John. One of the things I noticed that when we're dealing with Doctor Doom, depending upon the period that he's being drawn in, I noticed mm-hmm. that his mask has a tendency to move and emote. Interesting. Yeah. Now, this is the question. This is always the question when when they're making movies of these things, Mm -hmm. do you make the mask kind of emote with the face or do you 
leave it as kind of a you know a blank mask if you will like a, a real mask and they do mask work now this is something that comes up of course in, in the original sam raimi um spider-man mm-hmm. with green goblin because the original green goblin and that one was actually intended to be makeup because you can actually go online and, and for those of you who are interested in such a thing you can find the makeup test for the original green goblin uh, because i've often said that why would you why would you dress up a guy like willem dafoe and cover that crazy face of his. He doesn't need a mask. No, he looks like the green yeah, goblin. Just put him in green, and then he looks like... <laughs> and, and, and if you look up the original makeup test, they decided to do that. However, in that period, they said it looked too hokey. You know, now, if they made the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans, I'm sure that they would have gone with just the makeup. Right. Right? Well, I suppose we can wait and see who the villain of... Uh... Is it Amazing Spider-Man? Is that what the title of the next one is going to be? The word of the villain in that one, and I, and I can't, I shouldn't really speak to this, but the villain is... Oh, no, like, don't get in trouble, Julian. Don't get fired, as no. is said on one of uh, a podcast I used to listen to. <laughs> I won't get fired, because this is actually, this is free knowledge. But I will just say the, the, the rumor is that one of the main villains of the uh, film will actually be the Vulture. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, cool. you, know, you know, the 80s octogenarian <laughs> uh, yeah, character. Yeah, he's just going to be Robin Banks, because isn't that basically what the Vulture does at the start? Yep, he's a bank yeah. robber. Yeah. Uh, so that should be fun. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be any other villains, but, you know, it's Spider-Man, mm-hmm. who knows. Uh, now, yeah. so here we have, and, uh, oh, by the way, like, because nowadays they've actually explained why the masks emote. Do you, have you heard hmm. the explanation? I have not. What is the explanation? So the explanation, John, uh, and you would have noticed this actually being brought up in Earth 9999 in the recent American uh, Captain America film, uh, Civil War, where Tony Stark builds a special mask for Spider-Man that emotes, that corresponds with his emotions. Right. Yeah. The so this eyes, is and the eyes dilate and that sort of thing. Yeah, right? you got it. Which is famous for what Spider-Man is to get around the fact that Spider-Man, of course, in the comics, also emotes through his mask. And <laughs> yeah, so this is kind of the same thing. However, Doctor Doom is often depicted as having a mask that is very close to his skin, like it is actually like a metal skin with a, a jaw. I think it's kind of an impossible mask to actually create in real life, but mm-hmm. that doesn't look hokey. Uh, but a jaw that is free moving and, and things like that. So this is the specialty of, of Dr. Doom. So we are introduced to Dr. Doom and it kind of looks like something out of a gothic horror novel because if you notice, if we are greeted with this character that um, looks like some sort of dark knight and, oh, oh excuse me. Oh. Okay, oh, ah, okay, yes, a dark knight in the medieval sense, not in the Batman sense. And he's got a vulture, okay? And then he's got books that say demons and science and sorcery. And then the next image is him looking out a window, cursing how he wants to destroy the Fantastic Four. Uh, and there's lightning, a shock of lightning. Like, this is gothic to the extreme here. Uh, now, he races off in his helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to uh, go to the Baxter Building, which is in New York City, uh, which is the headquarters of the Fantastic Four, and he, where he apparently he brought his uh, electric storm with him, and he goes to the Baxter's uh, Building where the lights suddenly flicker out. 
Now, see, notice this is all like, this is really gothic theme. Would you agree? Like, this is just like something out of a, a Frankenstein monster pick from the from the 30s or or, or gothic literature. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is already just set up this original character here that we have Dr. Doom, who we are, we've met in the first uh, panel as having a, a book called Science and Sorcery and now being followed by shocks of lightning. Like he is, he's, he's perfectly set up as the most evil character. He's got all the evil, evil tropes like Dracula. Uh, and he is also, um, he's, he's also surrounded by uh, gothic imagery and, and sorcery and, and black magic. Um, now, to the Fantastic Four, where are they all during all of this? Before the fant before their building loses power, well, John, where are they? They are sitting around, and Johnny Storm is reading a comic book because he's a teenager. Mm hmm. And what's his, <laughs> what comic book is he reading? Would you like to tell the listeners what comic book he okay, happens to be sure. reading? Yes, it is the Incredible Hulk number one. <laughs> but if you yep. notice, uh, if you so this is this is interesting too. This is the first moment in the um, comics, actually, where we uh, learn that the Fantastic that the Fantastic Four exist in the same, or at least, are exist with knowledge of each other. Now, I think I said this in the last. Maybe I said this in the last episode. You can correct me if I'm wrong, John. Uh, but in the last episode, um, I was talking about how the Fantastic Four. And the Incredible Hulk and all these characters seems to use um, the comics as kind of historical documents. And yes. Jack, uh, Kurt, it's, yeah, it's come up, yeah, in the last two episodes, because specifically in Fantastic Four number four, with the introduction uh, of more, there's John oh, right. Storm reading the old old Submariner comic. That's right. 40s. Uh, and then last episode, yeah, and then last episode in Incredible Hulk number two, we were talking about how the aliens come and uh, they they seek the most brilliant scientific mind on the Earth and mm -hmm. their instruments tell them that's Bruce Banner, leaving the whole question of like, what about Reed Richards? Right, right, right. So, theoretically, yeah. yeah, Bruce Banner and Reed Richards at that point in time were not theoretically necessarily on the same. No. So right now we know that at least they have knowledge of each other here. However... We could say that from the the evidence that we have in this story is that the Fantastic Four might think the Hulk or Johnny Storm might think the Hulk is um, fictitious, I guess, in his comic books. Although it has been established in the recent story that um, Namor was real. So mm -hmm. uh, we're already beginning to get hints here. Now, what I love here is when Johnny Storm's reading uh, this comic, he turns to Ben Grimm and he says... This, uh, I have the exact quote in front of me. I'll be doggoned if this monster doesn't remind me of the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think what I enjoy the most about this is just the brazen salesmanship of Stan Lee. Like the idea that, <laughs> oh, the Incredible Hulk isn't selling so well. Maybe if I put a reference to it in Fantastic Four, people will be like, oh, what's this Incredible Hulk comic book? Yeah, and the pitch know. is like, if you like Ben Grimm, perhaps exactly. you like the Hulk. However, sure. I, I don't know if that, see, is that, I think that's a little bit of false advertising because I don't see a lot of Ben Grimm in the Hulk. 
Well, you'd have to read the comic to find out, wouldn't you, Julian? And I'd have to spend my 12 cents on that, wouldn't I? Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, um, Hulk and Hulk. (laughs) So, (laughs) see? So uh, Storm and Grimm, they get into one of their characteristic fights, uh, mainly about this this comparison to the Hulk. Um, uh, Because I think uh, Ben Grimm actually turns around to Storm and goes, I'll teach you to compare me to a comic book monster. And naturally, uh, Johnny fires at him with his fire. Uh, and, uh, then, uh, Ben Grimm breaks the table that is right beside Johnny Storm, and then Johnny flies away, and all hell breaks loose, and re- and so Sue has to step in and extinguish Johnny, and Reed Richards has to use his strength, or his, um, stretching skill, and tie Ben Grimm to the ground. Now, this is, a. Uh, hilarious in in a couple ways john because you see first off the the alliance of the fantastic four is highly highly loose right a simple fight sets them off always and then they destroy the room (laughs) it is amazing the number of tables that ben Grimm has broken in five issues yeah is he pretty much won an issue at this point? Oh yeah, like he's, he's he's pretty much like destroyed the apartment no less than four times by now. Yeah. Now this is the thing. That I guess this could be the one comparison to the Hulk with Ben Grimm in that uh, Ben Grimm has a very loose fuse, mm. um, but it's not established yet that the Hulk is created by anger yet. So again, right? Yeah, that's something no, and, that we're and- looking at. From you know, from a 2017 standpoint versus the 1962 standpoint here. Yeah, yeah, and the Hulk is so calculated and so uh, vicious, I suppose, but like in a very intellectual kind of way of like, oh, I'm going to destroy humanity. Whereas Ben Grimm is just like, come here, you, and he's trying to you piss me off. Yeah, break things. It's interesting to think, given the extreme unpopularity of the Hulk compared to the popularity of Fantastic Four and the Thing. And then when they came back to Hulk, maybe some of those, maybe looking at it and being like, okay, so these things worked for Thing. This stuff with the Hulk didn't work. So why don't we just bleed those Thing <laughs> character elements over to the Hulk and see if that makes a difference? Well, that's not a bad suggestion. I can't, I think that that's actually, see, there you go. There, there you go, John. That's a, that's a brilliant theory. And I mm. think we should, we'll look at that as we go through the Hulk. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, so um, this is this line that Reed Richards delivers on uh, the page three here, uh, where he goes, "What's the matter with the four of us? Whenever we're not fighting some menace to mankind, we end up fighting among ourselves." This encapsulates the Fantastic Four hmm. because it looks like every single time the Fantastic Four don't actually have a job, they do just end up destroying themselves because they're all so egotistical characters. Uh, mm. They always end up fighting with each other, unless, of course, there's an existential threat. Mm. Are you suggesting, Julian, that an external threat or an other, if you will, can unify a group in opposition to it, yeah. which would then fracture and turn upon itself if that other was not put forward as a threat? That's exactly what I'm th- I'm suggesting, John. Curious. I don't know if I believe you, Julian. No, no, I know. Is that it? And that's... And that's uh, what I was talking about at the beginning of this uh, issue. Uh, so maybe some countries should start, um, you know, banning Dr. Doom from crossing their customs. 
Yeah, hey, <laughs> I, I was planning on calling my MP, actually, so I'm going to add that to the list of things that I mentioned to him. Yes, ban Dr. Doom. Yeah, we definitely need to introduce that resolution mm-hmm. uh, as soon as possible. And also, uh, those Atlanteans, I don't like the way they look at me. Sure, we'll toss that in, too. Yeah. Uh, so, now, after this little fight, that's when the lights go out. And a helicopter appears over the Baxter building, shooting out, it uh, looks like, ropes and netting. And uh, he, this helicopter blocks off the entire access point to uh, Baxter building. Now, who's in this helicopter? We don't know yet. Uh, but the Fantastic Four are shocked that they've lost power. And they are now covered in a netting. Uh, and they all happen to look up. <laughs> and who's hanging out of the window flying this helicopter, or as they call it, do you know what they call them, John? Uh, or they call uh, it like five times in this issue? No, what what do they call it? A whirly bird. A whirly bird? Yeah. Oh, I love it. That, yeah. that should go on the list of, of enjoyable words that have popped up. Uh-huh. So a mock. Milksop and Whirlybird. Uh, and Stumblebum. Oh, Stumblebum. I always forget about Stumblebum. <laughs> you can't forget Stumblebum. No, I can't forget Stumblebum. <laughs> uh, so uh, then we have um, Reed, who happens to be looking up at this helicopter, and uh, he hears a voice from the past. And that voice he recognizes, but he thought it was dead. And this is where we get a flashback. Flashback! Mm-hmm. Uh, flashback to the origin of Doctor Doom. Now, this origin will change many times. It gets retconned or expanded many times throughout Earth 616. Uh, but what we learn is that back in Reed's college days, there was a student named Victor Von Doom uh, who was fascinated by sorcery and black magic. And he was a brilliant science student, but he was only interested in forbidden experiments. Now, one night... The evil genius went so far, too far as he brought forth powers which even he could not control. We don't know what those powers are. And, but he managed to escape with his life, although his face was badly disfigured. And then, uh, and then or uh, so, he, he left uh, where he left on uh, further adventures to find uh, whatever those things that he couldn't control Uh, in his experiments and he was uh apparently trolling the wastelands of specifically tibet Uh, tibet where all magic comes from julian that's right tibet where and you know what john this is something that's very common uh in these early stories actually for pretty much the first decade of Mm -hmm. earth 616 in that the center of all unknown magical arts one of the places is tibet or one of the main places because this is like the first example of a character going off to um the mountains and the the will the wilds of tibet to find the secrets of black magic and sorcery and we later find out this all gets retconned it all gets established that there is some dr strange um interaction here because dr strange of course he knows about black magic uh, and Dr. Doom naturally would go off there uh, to do this. But he's one of the first of like a thousand characters <laughs> that do this. Now, <laughs> I, I know, John, I know that you are just waiting to talk about that one thing here. Not really, actually. It, it, it obviously jumps out as a very interesting thing. 
it, it seemed to be more the, I would guess, or, or at least my, my feeling on the impetus for the choice of Tibet is, um, you know, sort of the idea of, okay, let's pick the most out of the way, mystically weird place. And I don't know what the, what the Dalai Lama was up to at this point in time. Obviously he would be uh, living uh, in exile in India. He's already made it to India and is publicly there. And it's like, Hey, I'm the Dalai Lama. We're the government of Tibet in exile. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but obviously China itself is a huge black hole for most of the West at this point. Yes. China was not open. Yeah. Yeah. Relations have not been normalized whatsoever. No. Um, uh, and and I suppose Asia is perhaps a better choice than Africa. Uh, this is maybe going to start getting me into places that people might get upset about. But, you know, the idea of the ancient culture of China and, and the, the mystical elements of Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion that uh, the West knew much less about at this point than we do today, which is even now not a whole lot. You well, know, I culture. think something something that we should keep what stuff we'll talk about later, I think, is the difference mm-hmm. between because you're hitting on it right now. You're you're talking about how Tibet is seen as a magical place, mm-hmm. unknown, mm-hmm. and and Africa is not. And Africa's seen, particularly in these comics, as a primitive place. Yes, and and generally, if you think of narratives, right, like think of think of Heart of Darkness, yeah, as opposed to stories of like Shangri La, right. That, right like yeah africa is the dark continent it is terrifying horrible things happen to people that go there mm-hmm. asia is magical and mystical and there's a big wall and it turns into a dragon but it's okay because matt damon will save us all yeah and that's <laughs> uh, you know i never saw that film i still haven't seen it oh i don't think it's come out yet I'm, oh really I'm seeing trailers for it on television in the last week or three yeah oh, okay. i don't know for sure I am not really planning on seeing it in theaters, so I don't oh, sure it. not. No, no, no. You can't. You can't <laughs> support things like that. However, it might. It might actually be a good film. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but probably not. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it'll actually do well in China because. Oh know, sure, it's, yeah, that's it. yeah. That's its own issue. Um, yeah. But the so. Um, but anyway, I think yeah. I think we should like note that the same way that these comics. Or this type of literature treats Tibet in its magical pastoralization uh, is is in no way different than the way that they treat Africa in its primitive pastoralization. It's the exact same method of othering the culture. Uh, mm. You will sometimes hear. I've heard this many times. Particularly, you'll hear that you'll hear some theorists that talk about race relations or race depictions in. Uh, fiction and mm-hmm. they always talk about well there should be something said that they're treating them in a primitive sense and and so they like hierarchize uh the the way racism is in comics um yeah. and i say there's no there's no reason why why would you do that why would you put a hierarchy into saying see they are they're racist to you but they're racist because they look at you as uh, magical they look at us as uh primitive and but when in fact the actual action of pastoralization is all that needs to be talked about uh because if you look at because the very action means that they're just separating them 
You're either some sort of spiritual unknowable creature or you're some primitive ooga booga uh, from uh, the jungle. It's the exact same method. So I'm always, I'm always fascinated by that. I think that's what you were uh, concerned about going into there mm-hmm. the hierarchization yeah, it, yeah but it's yeah and and it doesn't really come out too much in this issue because again Tibet no just, with just that one panel oh yeah he went off to the bed haven't heard of him since yeah but we'll see this is it's good to start talking about this because we're this is where it starts to appear more and more as the mm-hmm. stories appear through so this is something we will certainly talk about again on future episodes yes uh, i'm looking forward to meeting dr strange oh yes and of course the hordes of general fang <laughs> uh, so um, now we go back to the present of the story and this sinister genius uh, that Reed knows is hovering above the Baxter building and it seems to be a prelude to some sort of dangerous adventure uh, as Reed sums up in his uh, precise manager. Uh, now snap to uh Dr. Doom in his whirly bird, uh, and he is concerned that they're going to try and uh, break break out of this Baxter building here. So he comes up with the idea of sending Susan Storm out to him as a hostage, hostage to ensure that the Fantastic Four will do exactly what he demands. And, of course, this enrages Ben Grimm, who grabs the netting and finds out that the netting is actually electrified, and electrified, and he electrifies himself. Um, and, ultimately, they have to give up Sue Storm, who then... This is strange, John. Did you notice this? I don't know, because you haven't told me what it is okay. that okay. you know. I, I thought... I thought you might have noticed what happens in the next couple panels. So we have established that the uh, netting is electrified. Oh, yes. Right? And then and, Sue Storm gets out. And <laughs> then Sue Storm, Storm climbs up the netting. Yes, right. Well, he obviously turned off the electrical current, Julian. Right. I guess. I but The net in general is an amazing piece of technology that is not given enough respect in the issue, I think. Okay. Uh, so, first of all, this net somehow cuts the power in the Baxter building. Right. It is made of asbestos, so Johnny Storm can't burn through it. That's right. And can be electrified on demand. Right. I bet it also makes Julianne prize. Yes! <laughs> uh, it's, um... Yeah, and, and also... In the in the way that it's shown in the the story, or the way that it's realized by Jack Kirby, is it looks like rope. Yeah, like straw rope. Yeah, or just a you know a net made of yeah hemp and rope or whatever yeah. that you would throw over you know an ugabuga as you said earlier. <laughs> an ugabuga. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's that's a scientific term, by the way, ugabuga. Oh yeah, sure. Look it yeah. up. Yeah, look it up, ugabuga. Uh, oh, actually, maybe don't look it up. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so uh, we have Sue Storm on top of the Baxter building uh, looking to um, Dr. Doom. And that's where we end uh, the story. Now, part two. This is where shit hits the fan, ladies and gentlemen. 
uh, lady, lady and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> wow, but you have a lady that listens. That's awesome. Hi, lady. One lady, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> oh, let's hope that's not true. Um, <laughs> let's hope that's not true. Yeah, ladies, listen to this comic. I hope uh, listen to this podcast. I hope at some point that I can actually get because uh, there's two. Okay, there's two guys here talking about this, right? True. John, you're a guy. Uh, I identify as male. Yes. Yes, you correct. you identify as male. I also identify as male. Um and uh I think it would be good to get a female perspective on these. I think that would be fucking rad, yeah. Yeah, and it would be and I wish that we I wish that I knew somebody uh that would be interested in joining onto these things. So John, do you know anybody? Uh no, I don't generally <laughs> know many people or like many people. So, oh yeah. my. <laughs> so this is john talking to us from his cave in toronto with it's snow true. falling down do you have your bird today by the way i do he's uh hanging out he's eating uh i don't know if you've heard him at all no i realized that my earphones are quite sound canceling so even if he is chirping i probably wouldn't know no i don't hear him at all do you have a window that you're looking out uh no i don't the window is slightly above me and to the left Oh, the window's slightly above you and to the left. Sitting here, staring at my wall and talking to a disembodied voice on Skype. <laughs> That's right. You you live in a kind of a basement-y type mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I'm about Yeah, I'm about two weeks away from walking out my door and yelling at the first person I see, Get out of my way, insect! Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Hulk reference. Um, <laughs> all right, so part two, Back to the Past. Now, we have the fanta- the the last of the Fantastic Three, the last remaining members, because we know that Sue's up in this helicopter apparently, uh, and we see that Sue's being taken aboard his uh, Doctor Doom's Whirlybird, and the they need to race out. So this means John Storm, uh, Johnny Storm, uh, Reed Richards, and Ben Grimm. They need to break out of this netting. Now, the way they decide to do this. Uh, is a couple ways, but knowing uh, Ben Grimm's short fuse, he decides to use the Fantastic Four flare, you know, the one that uh, makes the four uh, in the sky, and fire it and shoot down uh, Doctor Doom's Whirlybird. Um, now, Doctor Doom knows uh, notices that this is a possibility, uh, so he takes some sort of how would you describe this, John? It's 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 kind of like it looks to me kind of like a suction cup, um, but it's yeah, or like a, a large bird cage. Yeah, like a large it's bird cage. On top of and he puts the fan, he puts the last remaining members of the Fantastic Four into this cage, or at least they go in by their own. Uh, and uh, this then sucks up into this gigantic whirlybird, which, by the way, in these few panels here, has totally changed in size. Now it's huge. But the yeah. first time that we saw it, it was not huge at all. No, it was like the size of a Huey. <laughs> yeah, it was like right? the size of a Huey. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's changing all over the place. And then we find out that the that the um, helicopter or the Whirlybird is actually jet-powered. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Science and, and science. sorcery, Julian. And Sci- sorcery. Yeah, science and sorcery. And they fly back to Victor Von Doom's castle, fortress, whatever. But it, it's, it looks like, um, again, a gothic uh, castle. Now, inside the gothic castle, 
we now have a really neat panel. Uh, I love this. I love this little picture. I'd love to have it blasted up. Take out the um, blurbs, the dialogue, uh, mm. and just blast this panel up. Because the first introduction we have, or the first face-to-face interaction that we have between Doctor Doom and Fantastic Four happens in the throne room of Doctor Doom's fortress. Uh, and he's sitting in a throne, and beside him, John, mm-hmm. is a tiger. It is, yes. Yes. Now, this is not mentioned beyond this, actually, really. There's a the small interaction where he threatens sicking his tiger on Ben Grimm. As you would. <laughs> As you would. Uh, but this is great in that we have this character who we've already established has a pet vulture in the first... Uh, mm. panel of the story and now he's got a tiger like mm. how can you not like dr doom well i yeah and i also want to add uh okay so this person knows magic mm-hmm. has a pet tiger he is either siegfried or roy correct uh, yeah <laughs> that's exactly what he is i never thought of that <laughs> dr doom six nights a week in vegas <laughs> Could you imagine? Nobody yeah. comes out of that alive. But no. people keep paying going in. It's how we deal with overpopulation. <laughs> Send them all down to uh, to Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, so anyway, so he, right beside uh, Dr. Doom and his tiger um, is a uh, tied up uh, Sue Storm. Mm-hmm. And we find that Dr. Doom is holding her. Um, because he's got a master plan. Uh, and John, I've talked on a bit, but what do you think? What is Dr. Doom's master plan? It's fairly typical. Well, actually, no, it's not. Typical. No, it's not typical. I was going to say, fairly okay. typical, John. What well, in the sense in? that he's like, so I'm going to hold this lady and you're going to go get me money. <laughs> but so not just any money. No, oh, but he doesn't communicate that to them, right? right. He just says, go get me this treasure. I right. But it's like, specifically, they want treasure. They want jewelry, like jewel treasures. One would assume, yes. Yeah. He's talking about he's talking about some family jewels. Yeah. He, so, yeah. Yeah, some family jewels. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and you know what? Fa- uh, Victor Von Doom actually does have some family jewels later on in, in, in or 616. So he often looks for the Doom jewels. Remember, Von, Von. Of. Yes, son of or just of Victor of Doom. Yes, yeah, yeah. Does it come or Victor from Victor Duke of Doom? You know, like yeah. I mean, Vaughn is is the original German Germanic, I assume, like uh, yeah. like which then sort of transposes its way into the van of Dutch. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So the question then goes: uh, Wait a minute. So he's the Duke of like he's the the King of Doom. We'll talk about what? this. We'll talk yeah, about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later, later. Yeah, later, we'll, later. we'll talk I'm, about this. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? Um, yeah. So, anyway, uh, the plan is to, that he he will kill or, or I don't know, hurt Sue Storm because he can't kill them yet because he can't do a threat of murder because of the comic codes of ethics. I guess he is fairly vague about what his, what the consequences are if they don't fulfill his uh, his desires. Well, he has to be because <laughs> he has to be because the Stanley can't do an outshot. No, he right. can't yeah. say it yet because of the uh, comic code of ethics would stipulate no death. Um, so 
But he, but if the Fantastic Four have the Fantastic Four or Fantastic Three in this case have to go and get this treasure, but this treasure isn't right around the block, John. No, it's not, Julian. No, this treasure is in the past. Dun dun dun. Uh-huh. Uh Hence, hence the title of the part. Uh, and th- apparently, the three are standing on a square in the throne room, which actually turns out to be a time traveling square. And it blasts them back into the pirate period. <laughs> because it's never really described what, when uh, they're actually going back. Uh, but oh, we true. just, yeah, we just see them go back to some place um, where there are pirates to get this treasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, because specifically the treasure that they're looking for is Blackbeard's treasure. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, hey, who's Blackbeard? Blackbeard is a, a legendary pirate in this story. Uh, now, so, they go from the throne room to the pirate period. <laughs> but is also <laughs> the, like this, so I guess it's also, not only is it a time-traveling machine, it's also a teleporting machine, because they go from the throne room. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it travels them uh, through time and space. Uh, yeah. It is it exists somewhere, or it moves them through the time-space continuum. Hmm. I suppose. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, time is just uh, time and space are functions of one another, right? So. Yeah. Uh, oh my you... God! Just had an epiphany. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. Do you know what else? Uh, do you know what else is can do things like this? Uh, really hard drugs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, but I was actually thinking more. It's a TARDIS, John. Ah. So you know what that means. Dr. Doom is a Time Lord? Dr. Doom is a Time Lord. You heard it here first. Dr. Doom is from Gallifrey. Ah, 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 it blew my mind. John doesn't give a shit, but it blew my mind. I I mean, I'm just sort of thinking of the consequences. Mainly, I think that we might owe royalties to somebody for mentioning all these trademarks. Yeah. (laughs) I I guess. Uh, But Dr. (laughs) Dr. Doom Time Lord, that's what it, that's really, uh, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, somebody make that movie, will you? Because I'll watch it. I'll watch the shit out of that film. Um, John, make it. Because I'm going to watch... You know what? If you call, if you made a film called Doctor Doom Time Lord, you can put on the uh, reviews, uh, mm. Julian R. Munns. I'd watch the shit of that film. Uh, I'll keep that in mind, I guess. That's, yeah. 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 Okay, good. Yeah. So John's, John's going to make billions. Um, so anyway... Um, the Fantastic Three, they are back in pirate times somewhere in the Caribbean, and they realize that they need some historical clothes. Uh, so luckily, uh, right around the corner is some pirates who have just stolen some clothes. <laughs> I love those guys. Uh, just the idea that, like, we're pirates! What are we going to go steal? Some clothing! Of clothes! Yes! Clothes? Did they rob a pirate-era laundromat? Uh, I, I, there's so many questions here. I love the interaction between these two because he's like, I stole these clothes, you swab. They're mine. And then the other one's like, you miserable sea dog. You <laughs> swore to divide the booty with me. So that's clothes. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, I don't, it's, it is, it's hilarious. Yeah, I love it. I, love I enjoyed it. it tremendously. Yeah, John, you know, just do it with like the voices because they all speak in the, uh, you know, the cl- the R pirate vernacular. Yeah, yeah the pirate vernacular. It's just, I just love. It. I stole these clothes, you swab. 
Um, anyway, so the Fantastic Three, they go over uh, and uh, they attack these pirates, uh, but they mistake them. Uh, the pirates uh, think they're all uh, particularly demons, particularly Ben, Gr- uh, ben Grimm. He looks like a demon to them. Um, and not only is there clothing in this sack, uh, very nice clothing, but there's also a wig and a beard. And an eye patch. And an eye patch, yes. just for Ben Grimm. I, yeah, I mean, that might fall under the uh, category of clothing, but it seems more like an accessory to me. Or accoutrement. Accoutrement. Ah, precisely. Ah, yeah. Uh, so Ben Grimm, and I love how Ben Grimm looks. He's got this great hat. He's He's got black hair. He's got a black beard. Uh, or like a bluey black beard uh, and an eye patch, and this covers them up, and then they go naturally to the pub to hopefully get a line on this treasure. Um, and they're speaking in crappy pirate lingo. Uh, ben Grimm's like, "Ahoy, matey!" Um, but Reed Richards ain't having it, so he says, "Knock it off." <laughs> um, and he's just like, "Ain't having it." He's like, "Knock it off, thing," because sometimes this is the other thing I don't understand about. Um, read uh or any of the characters they interchange between calling him ben and calling him thing Hmm, interesting uh i suppose if you wanted to be critical about it and not have it just be like well the writer stanley or whomever just you know chose whichever came to mind as they were hearing these words uh i suppose you could theorize that there might be a reason why they call him ben sometimes and thing other times like when they're pissed at him he calls him thing because he's you know being thingy that's really abusive though yeah yeah oh for sure that's strangely abusive because they all know how ben Grimm um very much is concerned with how he looks yes and is obsessed with the idea that he is this horrible thing yeah uh I mean, I suppose like the the sort of analog is like um, I, this doesn't happen to me specifically, but, but I have friends who like when their parents, when we were younger, normally their parents would call them like you know a, a shortened version of their name, like uh, let's say Steve. Uh-huh. And then when their parents were upset because this kid had done something wrong, it would be like the full name, so like Stephen, you did this. Oh, so your parents would be like they normally just call you John, but I mean, uh, but, my name but, is just John. So this, yeah, this so they normally just call <laughs> they normally just call you John, but when they're like angry at you, they they would call you like John Orlius. Exactly. Yeah, or perhaps even sometimes you'll get like the 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 thing where they'll use the full name like. Jonathan H. Storm, you come down here right now. John Orlius Q. Choo, <laughs> you come down here right now. Q. Choo, yeah, Q. Choo, yeah. It's it's uh, that's that's yeah. Mm-hmm. Ho Chi Minh, <laughs> John Orlius Chu. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. So um, I love that. Uh, now yeah. So Reed Richards, verbal abuser. Moving okay. on. Reed Richards, abusive. Uh, and uh, so they're talking rather loud about trying to find uh, Blackbeard's treasure, or Blackbeard, uh, to find out where to get his treasure from. And some pirates overhear this, and they drug the grog that everybody's drinking at the, the pub. And these guys get, what are they, 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 what they used to call this? And they used to call this something, they used to call it Shanghaiing somebody? It indeed used to call it Shanghaiing. Yeah, way. where they would... Uh, drink something that was drugged or usually i think it was would they just get people really really drunk uh and then they'd pass out carry them onto a boat uh sail away and then you got yourself some cheap labor mm-hmm. yeah I, I, what's the, do you know the origin of why they call it shanghai i would assume uh it was because they either did it in shanghai a lot or they did it uh and then you know let's say leaving san francisco or new york and they're like cool 
you're sailing to Shanghai with us. Have fun. I think it existed before um, the existence of San Francisco and New York and all that. I think it's I think it's something to do with maybe uh, um, perhaps Chinese pirates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because as we know, the one of the one of the most famous pirate um, groups is the Chinese pirates, although they're not Chinese. Hmm. Yeah, they're. What are they? There's a couple. There's a couple variations on them. There's, some of them are Vietnamese traders that have been mm-hmm. uh, discarded. Uh, and you name it, they were like anybody who's been discarded from their kingdoms. They became vagabonds. Um, and then there was specifically a group of people that lived in Canton, or as we know them now as Hong Kong. Uh, there's a mm-hmm. joke. I think it's a. Uh, is it? In, it might be in um, Simpsons where they're like, "Now we go to Secret Pirate Island." Do you mean Hong Kong, sir? Yes, I mean Hong Kong. Uh, and that <laughs> Hong Kong was kind of founded as a pirate hideout. Right. Or as the original Fort Canton, as they called it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, because there's a heavy pirate culture, I, ne- I didn't bother doing any research into it now that I feel like I really should have done some research mm-hmm. into the route of Shanghai. Uh, and mm-hmm. if there's someone out there who listens to this podcast, maybe uh, one of the men or that one lady uh, that we were talking about. Uh, lady, I'm going to give you a job, lady. Uh Find me the origin of Shanghai and then tweet me back. Okay, lady? Good. Uh, now, um, so part three on the trail of Blackbeard. We have the three, the Fantastic Three, passed out and they discover that they're on a boat on a pirate ship. Uh, and they wake up and discover that they have been Shanghaied. Uh, and of course, uh, these pirates don't know these individuals that they picked up. They think they're just some lowly squabs. I think even one of them uses the term squab. No, he doesn't use the term squab. He uses the term prisoner. Excuse me, I got more racist uh, than the actual comic was. Uh, and uh, they, uh, Ben Grimm wakes up and smashes the ship. <laughs> Uh, And he grabs one of the leaders of the pirates and he basically beats them all uh, to high hell. Uh, While Reed um, is, uh, where Reed actually gets concerned for the pirates' well-being. I think he actually says, I'm sorry for those pirates. Uh, And Johnny just uh, eggs on uh, Ben Grimm. And then uh, a fight ensues. And long story short, John, uh, boom, out of nowhere. Uh, comes a cannon shot and Ben Grimm turns around to the crew uh, and declares himself the leader because he's he's pretty much the the only guy he just you know he took on the entire crew by himself and they gladly go over you know pirate law Uh, so they discovered that their ship is under attack by another ship and I think in one of the great coincidences coincidences excuse me I'm, I'm not drunk I'm just my mouth is a little bit blah uh, when the great coincidence is Reed Richards looks over to the ship and says, perhaps that's Blackbeard's ship. Well, wouldn't that be lucky? Uh, and maybe it's loaded with treasure. So Ben Grimm orders the crew to attack the ship. Uh, now, little do they know, they've actually got, they don't need an entire crew or entire cannons to do this. They've just got Johnny Storm who flames on uh, and goes and burns down the sails of the other ship. Part four, which is aptly named Battle, just to show you where we're going. Uh, we get to watch, um, we get to watch the human torch, torch the ship. Uh, he actually creates a huge amount of fog by je- or steam, as he calls it, by just diving into the ocean. Which, by the way, John, okay, mm. John, do you, re- you remember when we were reading um, issue four, right? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what happens, one of the major threats that happens to Johnny Storm when he dives into the ocean? Um, he drowns. <laughs> 
Not that he drowns, but he loses the power to flame. Yes. Because he's wet. Yes. Here he's actually doing this tactic, but this time it's an actual battle tactic, uh, mm -hmm. and it seems to have absolutely no effect on him whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I conjectured that maybe even though he's saying like, oh yeah, I'm diving into the water, making all this heat, maybe he's actually just kind of skipping in and out of the water and getting a little damp, but not like, because then subsequently in another page or two, there's this whole thing of how like, the things uh, don't worry he can't turn he can't turn on his flame now because he's all wet but this uh, is like yeah yeah you're right yeah are yeah. his powers growing is it one of those sorts of well, things well this where, is also because that certainly has happened right yeah you know, this is certainly uh this is certainly something to look at with when it comes to particularly johnny storm his powers do get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger as these stories goes on, but it's directly corresponding to how popular the character is getting. Mm. So as Johnny Storm, and Johnny Storm really was the first like flagship, the first character that ran away on his own in popularity, um, mainly because, you know, he's a teenager, uh, <laughs> and uh, his, his powers start getting extraordinarily strong to the point that they just get absurd. But this mm. isn't the only rise in power in this story. Also, we get one from Reed Richards, where he shoots off of the ship as himself, stretches right off uh, over to uh, the other ship, grabs that ship, creates a plank bridge for the entire crew of the former ship uh, to march across his back and attack the other ship. Now, Reed Richards, of course, would have to be stronger uh, to do this, but it's not been established that Reed Richards has super strength. Of course, he has, um, it's been established that he can stretch and, and, and shape himself into any shape but there's some debate on how strong he actually is but mm -hmm. here he's strong enough to actually hold a whole crew mm. you know uh, so this is, we're noticing this sort of stuff with uh, the Fantastic Four. Now, this is just the inevitable um, results of creating more and more stories that they have to have better powers. Of course. Yeah. With the So anyway, here we have an extraordinarily strong, uh, strong Reed Richards and a strong Johnny Storm. And a fight breaks out. And the crew of Ben Grimm, he declares victory over this other ship. And they all hail him as, hooray for for Blackbeard is what they're calling. And that's when uh, Reed Richards, Johnny Storm, in the process of stealing some of the booty off of the other ship, realize that actually the Blackbeard they're looking for is Ben Grimm because as a twist of, you know, time, time travel, uh, the causality of time travel, Ben Grimm, wearing his black fake beard that he picked up from those fashion pirates, uh, he is Blackbeard. Now, that means that the treasure that is in the basement of, or the, do ships have basements? Uh, I don't know. Uh, they have below decks, yes. Okay. All the way down to, I believe, the very bottom of the ship is the bilges. The bilges? Mm-hmm. Oh, John, I didn't realize you were a sailor. Uh, I have been known. You have been known to sail? Actually, yes. No shit. Not, not like a lot and not on a large scale, uh, but uh, I have been sailing. Uh, on a small, like, two-person boat. Uh, I've been on boats. Yeah. Whoa, cool. I didn't know that side of you, John. See where I'm learning I'm learning something about you all the time. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, so anyway, inside this treasure is some jewels and crowns and shit, and they discover that these jewels have some dangerous power to them because they are... Do you know who they are? They're Merlin's jewels. They're they're called the Merlin stones. So Reed Richards, realizing this, knows that he's got to put 
uh, that he can't let these stones, these stones of extraordinary power, get into the hands of the black magic genius that is Dr. Doom. So he replaces the, the gold with chains. And he can keep his word and bring back Blackbeard's treasure chest now to Dr. Doom. But who throws a wrench in this? Because Reed Richards and Johnny Storm, ready to be transported back to Dr. Doom, didn't realize that Ben Grimm is really enjoying this pirate stuff. And he actually says, no, you two, you two are going to go back. I don't want to go with you. And now Reed and Johnny Storm won't allow this to happen. So they actually rush Ben Grimm. Ben Grimm orders his crew to capture Johnny Storm and Reed Richards to stop them from... Uh, stopping him as Blackbeard, and he puts them on a, uh, what do they call these? They call this a launch, a boat, a launch boat, out and maroon them in the water. But just then, a twister appears. <laughs> and the storm causes everybody to take full hands, and the storm destroys the ship. Looks like it actually kills the entire crew because they disappear. All of these, uh, the Fantastic Three, are marooned on a desert island, where Ben Grimm finally, ha where ha Ben Grimm realizes his absurdity of turning against his friends, he apologizes, and with the treasure in tow, Reed, Ben, and Johnny blast back in time to Doctor, or is it back in time or forward in time? I guess it's forward in time uh, to Doctor Doom. Now this is brings us to part five: the vengeance of Doctor Doom. Now, John, what is what is Dr. Doom getting vengeance for? You know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, he gets vengeance for the things that are about to happen, which he'll then want vengeance for. Uh, okay. Yeah, sure. Why sure. Not? Okay. All right. So, so back at Dr. Doom's lair, Dr. Doom is excited to see that his treasure is now here. He opens up the treasure chest and uh-oh. He discovers that the treasure chest is full of chains, balls and chains. And he turns around and he threatens Ben Grimm over this issue. Ben Grimm rushes him and Ben Grimm punches into Dr. Doom's chest. But Dr. Doom explodes and we discover that this whole time, this Dr. Doom has been a robot. A Doombot. A Doombot. And a screen appears, a circular screen, and we discover that Dr. Doom this entire time was in some other room and watching all of this happen by proxy. Now, beside Dr. Doom is the, is the captured Sue Storm. Sue Storm does what Sue Storm likes to do. She disappears. She destroys uh, the panel, the paneling of, if you will, uh, of the computer because... The moment that Ben Grimm smashed the robot and discovered that it was all a facade, he started to try and suffocate Reed Richards, uh, Johnny Storm, and Ben Grimm in that room. And by taking away the oxygen, he hoped that Johnny Storm would not be able to flame on because, you know, you need oxygen for flame. And Sue Storm, who's now invisible, she, ed she edges up takes control of the computer panel and activates his cutoff switch to short circuit the mechanism. The mechanism explodes. Uh, we see, the last we see of Dr. Doom is that he's being blasted back by his exploding computer. Sue Storm escapes 
and goes to find Johnny Storm, Reed Richards, and Ben Grimm half suffocated. She frees them from the cell and they all go searching for Dr. Doom. But they discover that the castle is starting to collapse and in a heroic escape, Reed Richards causes, tries to build a bridge, but he's not able to hold on to the, the building because it is collapsing. So Johnny Storm comes up with this method. And this is actually the first time that we are going to hear about this method. Johnny Storm can actually make his heat so strong that he can fuse together the intensity of uh, the, the molecules in any water and actually f uh, fuse it into what he calls a glass-like substance. This is the first appearance of Johnny Storm's supernova power that makes him so strong that he can actually fuse mo molecules together. Now, in fusing this, he creates a bridge of, I don't know, water glass? <laughs> and they oh. all escape. Now Johnny Storm surrounds the collapsing fortress in flame and we see again Dr. Doom who is looking at his own doom and he flies away with a jetpack, escapes. Johnny Storm is left hanging on a branch of a tree and they all walk away going, oh, well, that was an adventure. Let's hope we don't ever see that Dr. Doom. The, the, the last line is, gosh, first Submariner and now Dr. Doom loose on the earth. What happens next? Dun, 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 dun. Boom. So that's the appearance of Dr. Victor Von Doom, John. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. So trivia. Trivia time. Okay. So trivia time. Now, there are some things that we should talk about here when it comes to trivia. Uh, this is the first appearance of Dr. Doom, and his ex origins are expanded upon in the Fantastic Four Annual number two, as I told you, and the Books of Doom one to six. It is revealed in Astonishing Tales, number eight, that Victor was attempting to contact the netherworld in order to search for the lost soul of his mother, Cynthia, by using these Merlin stones. Now, Johnny Storm is seen reading a copy of Incredible Hulk, number one. The Hulk made his first guest appearance in Fantastic Four, number 12. So we'll get there. But this is the con this is that we're conscious that Hulk actually exists. Thing's time as Blackbeard was interrupted by a time-traveling Doctor Doom and Iron Man in Iron Man Volume 2, number 11. Uh, in our history, meaning John, myself, the world's history, there actually is a real Blackbeard. He is a real person. He's not some fictitious character. His name is Edward Teach, uh, and uh, he practiced piracy for around 27 months beginning in 1716. If Teach existed in Earth 616 universe, this is unspecified in this story. Uh, now, Doom is seeking the Merlin stones in this story, and while they are lost at sea in this issue and never actually uh, recovered because Reed dumps them out in the ocean, uh, they are eventually re uh, recovered in Dazzler issues 3 to 4. That's way down the line here. Uh, the crew that Ben commanded as Blackbeard had previously served Red Lucy Kioch, uh, a prior incarnation of the Scarlet Witch, as shown in Marvel Comics Presents number fifty. Uh, excuse me, number sixty to sixty-three. And the Fantastic Four's battle with Doctor Doom upon their return to the present was revisited and expanded upon in Hulk and Thing: Hard Knocks number one and two. Publication notes. Future Fantastic Four writer Roy Thomas has a letter printed in this issue in which he praises the title's attention to continuity. 
We will meet Roy many times. He begins uh, largely on the Iron Man stories, but he'll come on all over the place. And that's that's all that's really important about this story. Now, John, what are, what are some of your thoughts here? So as I said uh, at the top, um, I was interested in the concept of otherness, the similarities between uh, Ben Grimm and, um, Re- and uh, not Reed Richards, uh, but Dr. Doom. And in most notably, the as we were talking, the abusive nature of Mr. Fantastic that we had in that scene. Mm. Um, and we see kind of a similarity there between uh, Dr. Doom and Ben Grimm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't... Um, that that reading of it didn't really occur to me as I was reading it. So I'm, I'm interested to hear more from you and just far as... Uh, I don't know. Is is there an overarching? Is there a, an editorializing that's going on within the story, or is it just presenting this idea of like what otherness does to individuals that are perceived as other? Is that what you think's going well, on? Well, I think I think that's part of it. I think one of the things that we that I notice in this story particularly is that Ben Grimm actually becomes something of a villain, particularly mm-hmm. as 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 Blackbeard. Uh, and a lot of the pirates or the pirate characters, they're all villains too. And why are they villains? Because they're just pirates? Well, what is a pirate? Pirates are people that have been cut off from, they're outlaws. They're people who are not part of society for many different reasons. Um, some of them because of the fact that they, they don't just fit with society. And it's interesting that you have Ben Grimm, who often bemoans, or at least so far in the, the comics, bemoans his, oh, nobody will accept me in society. Uh, they He has to dress up in... The big trench coat and yeah, the hat. big trench coat and hat just to go out and buy a suit at a store. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a moment early on, I think it's an issue number, it would be issue number three. Oh, no, not issue number three. It's issue number one, excuse me, where he's trying to buy clothing that fits. And and the tailor says, no, that's not possible. You're a gargantuan monster. So these are these are all things that I notice here with Ben Grimm is that because he's, he's almost forced to be a villain in this story. Mm. Because we see how much Reed Richards actually abuses him just because of the way he looks. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the similarity between this and Victor Von Doom? Well, Victor Von Doom is uh, established in his in the few panels that uh, we get an introduction to his origin story. He is established as having some outside ideas to go back to what we were talking about right at the top. He's a critical thinker. He's inter- He doesn't believe that everything operates the same way uh, that are, operates in one way. He believes that there are many different options in how the world works uh, and gets punished for thinking outside of the box as it is. So he already makes himself a concept. He already makes himself a character of otherness, alienation, because of his his intention that there is some sort of scientific thought to be found in black magic. And it is through this pursuit that he actually disfigures himself with the explosion. Uh, and this makes him permanently other. Mm. So you see the—I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, maybe I don't even. And I'm now that I'm working this out with you. I'm actually not sure that I have anything to conclude about this. This is more just an observation. Hmm. Yeah, and that makes sense because I would say this issue feels interestingly because, well, 
What do you mean no, by interesting? Because I, well, it's interesting because of where my thought is just about to go. Because I feel like, so in the last issue of Fantastic Four, we had Submariner introduced. And I feel like a much, much more page space was devoted to Submariner's history and explaining his state of mind and why he, he decided to, like, you know, destroy New York. Uh, and then the rest of the world after that one would assume. Victor Von Doom, not so much is said about why. You know, like Reed Richards mentions in the flashback, oh yeah, he pursued these forbidden experiments. But why was Victor Von Doom doing that? Subsequently, obviously, it's revealed all this stuff about his mother's spirit and all that kind of thing. But in this issue itself, all we're told is that... He's just doing it. it. Yeah, he's just doing it. Just because. Well, yeah, I, again, like... It's maybe not fair for me to bring in where we know what happens with Doctor Doom, and right. it's, and it's and this always pops up, especially when you're dealing with really iconic characters that have long histories, like Doctor Doom or Namor, uh, mm-hmm. in that we know what happens with them after. So we look at their first story, and we read in all of that into the story. Right. However, yeah, here we're just kind of presented with a you know like a gothic figure uh, mm-hmm. who is supposed to be scary and. I like black magic and it uh, goes against, you know, the American ideal of um, the American ideal of scientific pursuit. Mm. Although that said, I do find it really interesting that there is no uh, ideological basis for Victor Von Doom's evilness. That's true. Will. That's true. There well, is no. I, yeah. Like the mm. boogeyman in most of the other things, like the people that have just been like straight up evil are commies yeah right this is the big fear of the era uh, of the time these are the people that are just unrepentant evil world domination seekers mm-hmm. um and so it's interesting that yeah that doesn't creep in at all here and again very little is really said about doom's motivations uh he talks about the merlin stones and how they'll help him achieve world domination is that specifically what he says in this yeah. issue yeah uh but it's unclear how exactly or, again, why. Right. You know? um, this is a time where uh, uh, what I'm about to say is definitely something that is colored by my perception of the character, which is very, very surface. Uh, okay. I, I haven't really done a lot of reading uh, of modern comics. or. Well, this, or is, this is why it's good yeah. to have you here. Go on. Yeah, but like my assumption, my inference about Doom as far as why he seeks power is because he sees himself as the philosopher king able to guide human society to better heights by controlling every single aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that an accurate sort of assessment? I think it's, some, I think it's, some ways? yeah, I think it's a, a, an accurate assessment of how he's presented here in this story. He's mm-hmm. um, with the first panel that we, or the second panel that we're introduced to him, in this story, we see that he's um, obsessed with being seen as stronger than the Fantastic mm-hmm. Four. Yeah, and... aside from when he's playing with his dolls in his private room. <laughs> hey, but he's, he, it's, I think that's all part of it, though. If he's got these dolls mm. of the Fantastic Four, he's obsessed with, like, oh, I can work these people, these characters like um, pawns or dolls. You mm-hmm. know, he mm-hmm. wants... he there's something innate in him that wants to be be recognized as the the most uh, i guess the greatest genius on the face of the planet 
Yeah, and I mean, I think I do think this is something we're reading into because of the developments of the relationship between Doctor Doom and Mister Fantastic. Yeah, um, that idea of the the personal rivalry, right? And the well, idea it's of, even there though, in that we yeah. find out that they're all college friends. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's you know obviously friends and friendly rivals, and then that rivalry becomes actually quite antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Although obviously they have worked together. Uh, at various points there is another there is another aspect i think here that could be the conflict that we're seeing here as you said most of the most uh, most of the villainous characters that we've been introduced to thus far have been commies uh but i think i brought this up when we were talking about namor in Mm. uh, the episode that we covered that uh that namor inter namor's conflict or initial conflict between um, Reed Richards or or the American Army and all that comes from the place that Namor represents something that always goes against American ideals, and that mm. would be he is blood. He is in power because of his blood. He's mm-hmm. a royal. He's a monarch. Well, what is Victor Von Doom? Just by his name, mm. he's also a noble. Right. Is that Result. the kind of thing that you think would be picked up on by an audience, though, or does that even matter? It's just I don't think it's something that's I don't think it's something that is intentional. I think it's something that is a side effect of the stories. Why is the villains in all of these pulp stories? Why are they always aristocrats? Mm. And why is the hero generally an everyman, usually an American everyman? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose it makes sense. I mean, I don't know. Jack Kirby's sort of wartime background. He fought, didn't he? Was he a GI? Uh, they both were. Oh, they both were. Okay. Yeah. Stanley. Uh, Stanley was as well. Stanley didn't go to yeah. war, uh, uh-huh. but they both did serve in the army. Yes. Yeah. But and obviously both Eastern European ties, specifically even. Is that correct? Well, yeah. Stan. Uh, Stanley really? is, yeah. is Stanley for sure is uh, an is of Eastern Jewish Eastern European Jewish descent. Stan Lieber. Leap of uh, Liebers. I thought he was a Liebowitz for some reason, but yes, okay. Uh, and uh, Jack Kirby is also. Uh, I don't want to speak to this because I don't know enough about Jack Kirby. Yeah, but it is a nom de plume, isn't it, Jack? Yeah. Kirby. Oh, yes, they all are. Yeah, they're all they're all children of immigrants. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, the, the, particularly New York. You know, like the New York crowd immigrant. Yes. Yeah. So it would make sense that they would have a very dim view of European aristocracy sure uh, and and also would you know those names would kind of jump out at them right like these would be names that would be sort of etched in their familial history well, yeah like the von doom yeah 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 the von richthofens and, and yes what. um yes so i think i think that is one of the things that does make them so well it's because they're it's because of that entitlement mm-hmm. yes of course yeah. Like, I deserve to be king of the world because I am a Von Doom. Hmm. So uh, I think uh, that's uh, that's where his villainy ultimately stems from. It's that sense of entitlement. And we get that with, of course, Namor, too, who is, he deserves to be king of the world because he's Prince of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. And and I do wonder how much of this, this issue specifically and, and sort of how little attention is paid to Doom is perhaps the first, it, it's a bit of a long con, if you'll excuse the term. Okay. But it's the first inkling, I would say, of of perhaps an active idea of like, 
this doesn't necessarily need to be just a standalone story. No. This is a character that we can introduce very briefly here because we know for sure we're bringing him back. I know f- well, well, that we're establishing him. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. Like, it is clear that they are establishing Victor Von Doom as something of a recurring villain. It, mm-hmm. is, it is very. It's probably the clearest of all of the villains we've encountered thus far. Oh yeah, for sure. I, that's why I was saying, you know, this mm-hmm. this feels like the first instance of seeing this actually happen in any of the comics that that I've read with you so far. Yeah, at least. and uh, also like there's something else that I'm realizing here in talking about this. We see that mm-hmm. same entitlement in the way that they depict the communist characters. Oh, absolutely. So if you look at like how we, they described uh, the gargoyle, for example, mm-hmm. in um, in the first appearance of Hulk. Hulk number one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in Hulk number one. And the gargoyle is depicted not as a communist, mm-hmm. but almost as an like a, as a warlord and a, as an aristocrat. Yeah, he just sits around and hangs out and waits for them to be like, hey, gargoyle, we need your help. Yeah, and one of the things, uh, one of the things that even one of the uh, communists refers to him, the communist soldiers refers to him as sire, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Right. And sire doesn't make any sense because he didn't sire them at all. Um, nope. But it is it is a you know it it has become an aristocratic term. Yeah, it's yeah it's the term that one uses to uh, towards a member of the nobility who is in charge of you, right? Like it's interesting to think too. I guess obviously none of these characters have been introduced, and I don't know how far away we are, but you know Baron Zemo uh, and well and... Baron Zemo, yes, Baron Zemo exists already. Oh, because he was in the older Captain America. That's Interesting. Right. Yeah. Right. He's just not uh, in then, 616 yet. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then thinking of, uh, was the Red Skull introduced in yeah. the Golden Age Captain America? Oops. Okay. Yeah. He, he's, um, he's already in existence. Mm-hmm. He hasn't reappeared because, of course, Captain America hasn't reappeared yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But... But it's... Uh, you're right. And, and that is a very specifically American... I can't say for this might exist in Europe as well. Uh, I'm only it's just because it's I very, am more just, familiar with American mass culture. I think yeah, it's probably the, I think it's probably more apt for us to say it's a very specific Republican, and I mean small R Republican, not big R Republican. Yes, uh, yeah, I, very a specific Republican uh, fear, and that mm-hmm. would, yeah, and distaste for the mm-hmm. aristocracy for for that idea. I mean that said, they've they have created their own nobility class, right? It is, it is, uh, it's just the children of sort of rich capitalists who sometimes then go on into politics. Yeah. So you, and Kennedy... you know, there's, there's something else that I noticed here too, because I'm currently reading Stanley Carnot's uh, Vietnam history, hmm. uh, which uh, corresponded with uh, a PBS documentary back in the 1980s. And Stanley Carnot was a reporter, uh, Porter that pretty much spent about I think only like 20, 20 years but he was there for the most of the Vietnam conflict and was there even before the Americans uh, were there he was there uh, like in 1954 when the French were fighting uh, mm-hmm. Ho Chi Minh uh, Minh's group and I noticed that there's a similarity and I, I kept seeing it uh, throughout like when I was con- looking at the, the concept of otherness I was looking at these two characters and going oh my god they bear so much of a striking similarity to what Ho Chi Minh is as a man do you know much about ho chi Minh? i do not so ho chi Minh's not his real name mm-hmm. he had about six names that he just interchanged 
he spent nearly 40 years of his life um, studying and learning from different people and, and, and changing uh, how he thought. And he did all this uh, in effort or kind of in, a, in, or he fell into it to become the famous resistance leader that he became. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I noticed a similarity, particularly between Dr. Doom and Ho Chi Minh uh, in the way that they act in this, the, the moment when, and this is why I focus so much on it, the moment when uh, Dr. Doom goes off to Tibet to learn mm-hmm. about the dark arts is very similar in, uh, in a way to the way that Ho Chi Minh went off to Paris to learn mm-hmm. about the West. Because he did. He trained in Paris. Amongst, right. He trained and lived amongst most of the same people that he would uh, try and kill and, and ultimately defeat at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954, uh, the French soldiers that were there. Um, so, and as he famously said, he had to go learn from the West how to defeat the West. Right. Uh, and there is a similarity, I think, here in the Doctor Doom character in that it seems like in a way to destroy um, the world as he sees it, he has to learn from the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's such a strong mythological archetypal yeah. that idea, right? The wandering in the wilderness period. This goes all the way back to Jesus. Well, it goes on before that. Uh, before that, yeah. If you want to go, uh, Zoroaster has oh. a has a has a uh, uh, okay a wilderness. I mean, in yeah. The, you have to think even in the story of Noah. Noah spends forty days, forty nights floating around. Looking uh-huh. for uh, looking for absolute like looking for absolution. They all do that, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and, and that's it's, why it's no coincidence that Jesus goes into the wilderness. Yes. forty days, yeah. and forty nights. Yeah, and it's fascinating because in this case, though, this archetype is being applied to a villainous character, yes. not hero. Right. Uh, which I don't know. It's just interesting. I don't know that it says anything one way or another. He's very clearly only being positioned as a villain at this point. I think it actually does say something. And I'm not Uh, saying this is intentional, but (laughs) I think it does say something because it is in the 1960s, which arguably up until probably just about now, (laughs) 1960s Red Scare America may have been one of the most xenophobic periods in their history okay uh particularly well when i say most xenophobic what i'm saying is that the government was obsessed with this that the establishment was obsessed with xenophobia i'm not saying the people themselves were obsessed with uh a xenophobia right. uh i mean I'm, i'll I'll, ac- I'll accept one of if you're not saying the most that's that would be my only i said thing. one of the most yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's yeah, not exactly. it's not because again most. we have things like the chinese exclusion act and it's just like well that's hmm Oh no! Probably, the, probably. If we're gonna go into this, probably the most xenophobic period would be the uh, Gilded Age, just shortly after um, the Civil War, that gave rise to things like the Exclusion Act. Yes, yeah, you know, like that's that was ext- and that was also that was the um, you know the period of the Monroe Doctrine and mm-hmm. that, you know back out of our business. Like that's yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's extraordinary. Yeah, extraordinarily xenophobic. But anyway, any kind of a positive way. <laughs> I, we have to. Okay, when we're talking about xenophobia, I mean, we just. I know we're. When we're talking about xenophobia, I mean, it's it's become a ma- it's a major theme of American history. Mm-hmm. That country has Human always history, been. Ex- I would argue. It's yeah, not- but specifically in the United States of of the last two hundred years, um, 
to some degree also when you're talking about Japan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there's a couple other countries that come on this list, but let's let's specifically talk about the states since we're dealing with American literature here. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a major theme in that we stay in our little country because we don't need to go anywhere beyond our country, and we think that our country is the best country. Where if you actually look at uh, if you actually look at how the world operates, the United States is not the best country in the world. The United States um, often is. I think, I mean, it's got a high infant uh, mortality rate. It's got a high poverty rate, got a high illiteracy rate for a country uh, like um, like them, uh, like a, a G8 country, a G8 power. Uh, we're seeing that now in the United States. This is why I'm talking about this, is that there's a rise of xenophobia. You know, there's a rise of we don't want to go outside of our country. We can't, any, any dissenting opinion is not a, a valid opinion. And the reason why I'm bringing this up here in the 1960s is because although people, like, you know, the populace was largely not xenophobic, the government and the establishment was very concerned with outside influence. Mm -hmm. You know, communism particularly, as they called it. Um, And it, it was the job of comics, which comics... Uh, particularly things like Marvel and DC, to kind of pull a centrist line. You know, they were not editorializing. They were not underground comics. Um, And they would often give kind of the official uh, depiction of the world. Mm. So that's why I think they're preaching a kind of xenophobia and that the villain is the one that's going out and finding all these different opinions on things and, and learning how to do critical thought. When even though Reed Richards is a scientific genius, he's actually a very um, closed-minded, individual. closed-minded individual. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. most of the yeah. superheroes are. I mean, Bruce Banner is. We've just we've seen how Bruce Banner is very closed-minded as a scientist. Uh, We will see later on when we get to know him, Tony Stark begins very close minded. Mm. Uh, And it's it's a very common trait. It's and those are all the characters that seem to be coming down from the establishment, as it were. But there are characters that are more revolutionary, like there's uh, when we get to um, Peter Parker. For example, Peter Parker being just a kid, um, it gets wrapped up in all the uh, countercultural aspects of the world, and 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 he starts to question authority. But this is 1962. This is before questioning authority has become mainstream. Right. Yeah. This is before Watergate. This, this is, is before. Well, this is way before Watergate. This on papers and yeah. yeah. The hippie movement is has barely started. Vietnam uh, War. Uh, the Americans are involved in it but they are not involved in the capacity that they are about to become uh right it's still just advisors at this point right well yeah advisors and cia operatives and Mm -hmm. uh, and Mm -hmm. things like that clandestine activities so vietnam was not on the lips of people yet um and the concept of um distrust everybody over 40 or whatever it was uh that they used to say is not around yet Mm mm-hmm so what what have we what's what's the conclusion because <laughs> we've talked about it. <laughs> i don't really know what the conclusion is other than uh again i i think it's really 
fascinating to see Stanley's ambition, I would argue, at this point, as far as where he can take these comics, instead of it having to be just one-off, again, monster of the weeky, villain of the weeky sort of stories, he is starting to feel, or my, my feeling reading this comic is that he is starting to say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, what if we could tell a bigger story? What if we could tell a story that didn't even need to be completely consecutive, right? Like we mm-hmm. could take a couple issues off and then this character comes back and then they beat him again and he takes a couple issues off and he comes back again, right? Or even tell one ongoing narrative in all throughout that. And that to me is quite singular and, 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 I would be interested to know if there's any other earlier examples of people starting to do this kind of thing. Well, this is very clear um, that they're setting this up. Now, do you know what the next story in Fantastic Four is? Is it Doctor Doom teaming up with Namor? Yes. And then they come at them? Aha! Okay. So they were already already knowing that they were setting something Mm. up here. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah. there is something going on. Like I think I think you're right to be picking up that these guys are beginning to think, hey, there's even by the fact that we've now as I think it was, you said uh earlier in the in the episode today that the appearance of the Hulk um story mm-hmm. is like a sales pitch. Yeah. Well it's a little bit of a sales pitch. and I would think that it is a sales pitch. I mean, there's a lot to do with it. However, mm-hmm. I think there's also something to um, the concept that they may be trying to create a larger universe and maybe just haven't mm-hmm. figured out that Hulk will actually be a character in the same world that Fantastic Four will be in. Right. Yeah. I mean, nobody had really done that before. Well, DC I, like... had done something like it, but they had never really put it into... Um, They'd never really like put it into as an organized fashion as uh, Marvel is about to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's really fascinating and to see those first steps starting to happen is really neat and really exciting in a very even though it is, you know, perhaps in, in some respects, you know, you could say, Oh, it's kind of crude and ham fisted and weird things are happening, like he's Bob Banner or he's Bruce Banner mm-hmm. or nobody knows what his name is. And yet you can see those threads starting to come together. And it's just really neat. It's it's really kind of exciting. It must have been exciting as a kid to be reading this and being like, what? Like the Fantastic Four knows who the Hulk is? What? Uh, I don't know if anybody's reading the Hulk. But oh, I'm sure there were. Nobody was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's one or two people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You like know, like there's, there's the one lady and the couple gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that one lady. Uh, she's great. I really yeah. like her. Um, yeah, but that that is super neat to kind of put yourself in those shoes and think about. Hey, that's what the whole point of this podcast is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super cool. Yeah. Uh, so, John, um, do you have uh, do you have anything you'd like to add? No, no. I feel pretty good. I think that's a great way to end this. I think that's a really great and positive way to end this uh, episode uh, because. This story, I mean, it. even though it's not the greatest story in the world, it really isn't. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that's just because Dr. Doom is awesome? 
well, it's a little bit to do with that. I mean, Dr. Doom <laughs> is awesome. Like he's, yeah. he, he's easily one of my favorite characters. I, I think he's, and I think Dr. Doom of all the characters is the one that has been most screwed up, screwed in the way that they have adapted him to film. Mm, yes. Even though the Fantastic Four, they have not really had good films. I mean, I guess the, the like 90s Jessica, not 90s, the Alba versions is probably the closest. Uh, right. But he's always just so cheap. He's just some cheap, like, evil foaming at the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the only other characters that come to mind, uh, and, and I would say your thought that Doom is the one that's been the most screwed is probably still accurate because Doom is the most important out of all of these characters mm-hmm. to receive such a poor treatment. Um, yeah. And I haven't actually seen these uh, these films I'm about to name, so maybe they're not really that, really that bad, but like Constantine, Ghost Rider? Ugh. Oh no, Constantine <laughs> as a film. Uh, Constantine as a film, even though it's not Marvel, it's DC. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Constantine is actually not a bad movie, and it gets yeah. the. Fla- I think I have heard. That. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets the flavor of uh, the comics right. Aside from the fact that it's Keanu Reeves playing the character yeah. as an American that, uh, and British, yeah, and he's not British, <laughs> and he doesn't look vaguely like Sting, and there's like no, yeah. state, there's no like statements against Margaret Uh-oh. Thatcher or anything like that, uh, yeah. which is what the original Hellblazer was like famous for. Um, right. It's pretty good. It gets the flavor really well of, okay, of the comics. Cool. Um, yeah. Ghost Rider. Oh, fuck. Nick Cage, Ghost Rider. Yeah. Oh, buddy? Uh, buddy? Yeah. I mean, the first Ghost Rider is not bad. I particularly yeah. like the villains I mean, in it. Ghost Rider as a character kind of sucks anyway. So it's fine. Yeah. Ghost Rider as a character does <laughs> suck. And it, and it does. Well, he does suck. I mean, he's more. Very 90 right it's very like oh he's a skull that's on fire oh and now ghost leather jacket and he rides a motorcycle yeah, yeah. Ghost, well that might be how you see it now but ghost Rider is more in 1970s exploitation that's where he was born so yeah yeah that kind like of the stuff. biker exploitation yeah uh-huh you know like come over here this is my old lady kind of you know <laughs> is that do bikers say that to you very often julian uh i don't know any bikers uh, oh. uh, but if I were a biker, I would wear a bunch of leather and, and refer to everybody as my old lady. Oh, not stumble bums or milk sops. Oh God, we got to bring back stumble bum. <laughs> we really I think got... you bring it back by just saying it to people on the street. Hey, you know, will... hey, you know who is probably the, um, you know who's probably the guy who most invokes the name stumble bum. Uh, no, who is? Who do you think it is? Dr. Ben Carson. Oh, do you remember? Could, do you remember you when you? they were doing that uh, Republican debate, and, and Ben Carson got stuck in the hallway? <laughs> I seem to recall that story. Yeah, yeah, I Couldn't think that's he literally stumble bummed onto the stage. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, John, this has uh, been a good episode. Uh, yeah, and. Uh, Hey, hey, folks out there, uh, talk to me. Talk to me. Tell me if this this theory out there uh, about the the importance of of doom and Namor's aristocracy is worth it. Uh, but John, you you want to do this again? I would love to, Julian. Perfect, because you're gonna love the next character that we're dealing with in the in the stories here. And as always, I remain Julian R. Munns, and John, who do you remain? I remain John Chu. I do have a middle initial, but I'm not going to tell it to you. Okay. John X Chu, or John Q Chu. 
And oh. this is uh, this is Journey into Marvel. Thank you for listening to Journey into Marvel, Episode 9, Doctor Doom, Time Lord. Uh, John and I really appreciate you joining with us uh, every week that we do these episodes. Um, If you do like what you've heard today, please share it out on Twitter, share it out on Facebook, uh, give us a good review over at iTunes, uh, Journey into Marvel on iTunes. Now, uh, we did mention a couple episodes in this podcast that might help you understand some of the things we talked about in this. Of course, we discuss the debut of the Fantastic Four and therefore the debut of the Marvel Universe in The Fantastic Beginning. Also, Oppenheimer's Hulk, which talked about the debut of Hulk, and we mentioned that here, of course, on this episode as well and also we mentioned the recurrence of the atlantean namor the submariner and he's featured in our episode atlantean overtures and if you're curious to hear just a little bit more about what we're talking about in the building of earth 616 universe head on over to trumpish toad men amok which was last week's episode of journey into marvel and you'll hear a little bit more about what we're talking about then now as always, I like to tell you what the next issue will be reading, and the next issue we'll be reading is featured in Amazing Fantasy number 15, version 1, and the story is Spider-Man. So get excited for that, because Peter Parker is about to enter onto the scene. Until next time, I'm Julian Armands, and this is Journey into Marvel.